Hello, I'm Angela Barnes, and I've just snuck on here to tell you that We Are History, the less than serious podcast hosted by me and John O'Farrell, has joined the Podmasters gang. And this is great news for us because not only are Podmasters purveyors of excellent podcasts, but neither John or I have ever been in a gang before, so we're obviously thrilled to bits. We Are History's seventh series will be launching very soon, but if you can't wait, you can listen right now to our entire back catalogue of 80 or so eclectic episodes. We bring you the most interesting stories we can find from the past, so have a listen if you'd like to know whether Vlad the Impaler's anger issues really earned him that nickname, or how a notorious family from Essex ended up declaring an independent country on a platform in the North Sea. Or maybe how a dead homeless Welshman changed Britain's fortunes in World War II. So that's We Are History. It might not change the world as much as the Black Death did, but it is a little bit funnier. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It's 13 years ago this week, on the 11th of May 2010, that David Cameron entered number 10 as Prime Minister as the head of a coalition government after days of wrangling and paralysis produced by an inconclusive general election vote. Joining him in government was George Osborne as the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He served until 2016. The consequences of the government of these two are sometimes forgotten, given the chaos that followed Cameron's disastrously misjudged EU referendum, then a vote for Brexit, then a civil war in the Tory party that still, to some extent, sputters on. But the Cameron-Osborne years, with Lib Dem Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, left their own mark on the country in the austerity policies that left the poorest to carry the can for the effects of the financial crisis, in the still inconclusive Scottish independence wrangle, and of course in that vote on EU membership. We often think we're living in Boris Johnson's world, but did it all really start with Cameron and Osborne? With me to look at this is Steve Richards from our companion podcast, Rock and Roll Politics. Hi Steve, how are you doing? Hi Andrew, very well. And you? Uh, not bad, yes. Only You've only done six podcasts this week, so we'll yeah. just get another one under, under <laughs> our belt while we're at it. So, I mean, just to, to look at Cameron in particular, what sort of prime minister was he supposed to be? He, he was kind of the kind of gentle Tory, or at least sold himself as, as that, didn't he? Well, that's what he sold himself as, and he sold himself uh, very effectively. And it's a really interesting case study of how it's quite easy, certainly for conservative leaders, to uh, mesmerise parts of the media by using terms like the centre ground, moderniser, both of which um, Cameron deployed. And I remember speaking to senior people at The Guardian. I was a columnist at The Independent, the deputy editor, Ian Birrell. They were all utterly bowled over and said, oh, wow, this is a person who's going to be transformative. Um, And he got a very soft press as a result. But actually, if you analyse what Cameron was saying, even in opposition, here was someone brought up on Thatcherism, but somehow or other convincing, as I say, as well as the Tory papers, the BBC, the Guardian, the Independent, that he was a different kind of Tory. Um, and it was it, it was a very effective presentational project in that sense. This was the culmination of a very long kind of long march in the Tory party of like, we we must not be the nasty party, we must be identified as something else. It now seems totally alien to what the the party turned into. Yeah, you see, what he did very cleverly is on Europe, uh, when he was a new leader, 
which was the great fault line in the Conservative Party and needed addressing by a real moderniser, a grown-up moderniser of substance. He just said, we need to stop banging on about Europe, which is a different and easier instruction to give a party split over the issue. Um, and of course, they ignored it and carried on in their Eurosceptic direction to the point of Brexit. He said his great passion, copying Blair with education, 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 was the NHS. Big cheers at the conference, BBC saying this shows it's a new kind of Tory party or Tory leader. Um, well, at the very same time, his shadow health secretary was planning up proposals to basically destroy the whole concept of the NHS. Um, that was Andrew Lansley. And in fairness to Lansley, it was all done in public, but no one paid any attention. They bought the idea that here was a new revitalised One Nation Tory leader. And he wasn't. It's interesting, the, the idea that uh, Europe could be dealt with simply by saying, stop banging on about it. Do you think that points to character at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it points to weakness because the Tory party, when Cameron took over, had lost three successive general elections. Freakish for the Tory party. Uh, in UK politics, the Tory party wins elections um, with its eyes closed. It had lost three heavily and clearly needed um, a fundamental uh, remaking. It needed to move on from Thatcherism, a hugely electorally successful project in the 80s, and to go somewhere else. Now, if you look at sort of what poor old Neil Kinnock had to do with Labour, he didn't win, but he had to really take on elements of the party. Cameron didn't do that. Just telling them to be quiet about it is not a challenge about the direction the Tory party was going in after Maastricht and all the rows they had over that in the 90s. And it was just weak and uh, shallow. And it was for complicated reasons. I think he partly was quite a sort of superficial character who, you know, had lived on the whole a charmed life. But he also was basically a Eurosceptic. He was basically a believer in the sort of Thatcherite vision of a much smaller state. He would have to take on himself to really reform the party, and he wasn't going to do that. The financial crisis both defined the Cameron Osborne government, but also kind of gave it carte blanche to do things that had been previously very hard to imagine. The Conservatives very astutely pinned the financial crisis on the Labour Party. Uh, that infamous letter which Greg Hans is still trotting out, Liam Burns' letter, which said, Dear Chief Secretary, I'm afraid to tell you there's no money left. To what extent did the, did the Cameron Osborne government honestly uh, engage with the problems of the financial crisis? And to what extent did they simply use it as a method to do what they wanted to do anyway? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, uh, I think they used the financial crisis for, uh, in two ways uh, related to some extent. One was to find a way of winning the election by preposterously blaming the Labour government for the entire global crash, which of course originated in America. They did it very effectively, um, again, you know, with a very willingly gullible media. But the other thing is they used it to return to their comfort zone. So up until the crash in 2008, Cameron and Osborne uh, pretended to be sort of almost, uh, you know, 
uh, well, for one example, they said that Gordon Brown wasn't spending enough on the NHS. And they had posters of Gordon Brown at their party conference saying he hadn't invested enough money in the NHS. It was a conservative priority, etc. They were pretending to be quite big public spenders, um, which was not where they were at all. And they used the financial crash to return to their comfort zone of spending cuts, a smaller state, and as I say, a kind of Thatcherite route to... Uh, uh, address the issues as they saw it uh, in the country. And when they moved into power in 2010, uh, the real-term spending cuts were far deeper than anything Thatcher had contemplated. Now, some of them look back and say it was too deep and too fast. Some Tory MPs say that. And people like Danny Finkelstein, who I know well, I recently interviewed on my podcast, um, says it was kind of technocratic choice, really. It wasn't. It was an ideological choice. And many people disagreed with it, which shows there was a sort of ideological element to it. Um, and and that set the course. And um, uh, Britain is still facing the consequences of decisions taken then. Part of it as well, with the kind of ostentatious cruelties of things like the bedroom tax, uh, you know, forcing people on benefits to either move to smaller places or lose part of their benefits because the house they were in happened to have an extra room. And also, you know, the kind of the outsourced benefit checks where, you know, people with physical disabilities would be kind of forced to crawl across the floor to prove that they were mobile. We tend to forget all this stuff because of all the craziness that that happened afterwards. Do you think that that sort of that stuff permanently changed the Tory party or is it what was always kind of underneath and waiting to come out? If you remember, what happened was the Conservative Party was um, uh, moving to the right, obviously, under Margaret Thatcher. John Major was a very different kind of Tory. He was a one-nation Tory. But in trying to appease his party and manage his party, he moved to the right with some of the things that he did. Uh, then in opposition, they had William Hague again appealing quite openly to the Tory core vote on the right. Then you had Ian Duncan Smith similarly. And then in came David Cameron and George Osborne and continued. It's forgotten now because of the two, George Osborne is the, the, the more interesting. He is, he has genuine curiosity about politics. But as a chancellor, he was tough, tough, tough. And he was the one who, um, remember, did that sort of, t- t- it was a complete reversal of roles. Ian Duncan Smith, seen on the right, was campaigning for more money for benefits uh, and ended up resigning because he kept on being told he had to cut the benefits. George Osborne, seen as this sort of, you know, modernising centrist Tory by, as I say, The Guardian, the BBC, and seen like this to this very day by many, was saying, right, we're going to cut benefits. And he famously said, you know, if you live somewhere and you you know your next door neighbour is skiving in bed uh, while you're going out to work, you, you know, they shouldn't be on benefits. It was It was a very, talk about the nasty party, this was a real attempt to uh, woo those kind of very reactionary instincts in some voters. Um, But it wasn't just political. I mean, he did it. He did cut the benefit bills. Say that we had the perverse situation where it was Ian Duncan Smith resigning because he couldn't get the money he wanted for his benefit plans. Tell me a bit more about Osborne and his background, because he is a strange... 
He has a strange figure. He's I've kind of been in a room with him. There is an element of the uncanny valley about him. What's his political background? You say he had more political curiosity than uh, perhaps he's given credit for. Whenever I hear Osborne's doing an interview somewhere, I make sure I track it down and watch and listen because, because of that curiosity, he is always worth listening to. As long as I say you don't get fooled by all this kind of, oh, he's on the centre ground and all this kind of thing, which far too many have been fooled by because he is reasonable of tone, he's funny, um, he likes parts of the Labour Party, he's interested in the whole political spectrum and what's happening and why. In a way, he, of this sort of Tory generation of politicians, which haven't produced many interesting people, uh, he is quite interesting. You've got to root him politically or else you get fooled by the reasonable, I think quite genuinely sort of reasonable tone. Um, and people who meet him who aren't conservatives say, oh yeah, he was quite a nice bloke, he engaged, he wasn't patronising. He comes from a sort of uh, quite small L liberal background compared with David Cameron, whose father was a stockbroker and you know, Cameron was brought up with that sort of language of Thatcherite 80s, um, and it stayed with him in private, I, 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 I'm told. Osborne was, was a subtler uh, figure, and as I say, his great saving grace uh, was this curiosity. I think he has a fascination for politics, American politics, European politics. I mean, he he, he was, I think, more of a pro-European than Cameron. But he was one of those who, although opposed to the referendum that Cameron imposed on the country. The irony about Osborne is, although he's fascinated by political strategy, he's not very good at it. I don't think he was an asset in the referendum campaign, the Brexit referendum campaign. We've hardly mentioned at all the Lib Dems, and it was a coalition, at least the first five years of the, of the government. Um, to what extent did the, did the two of them use the, the Lib Dems as, as human shields to give a kind of a human face to what they were doing, or at least to carry the can? Uh, Cameron and Osborne manipulated the Lib Dems brilliantly. Cameron, uh, I, I've written a book about prime ministers, and he doesn't come that well out of it. But I do say he was one of the best managers of people in his cabinet and beyond. And his management of the Lib Dems, he, Cameron, I mean, Clegg was a naive and gullible politician. He had only been a politician for a few years. He was so out of his depth in this world. Um, but they got everything they wanted virtually. In the Treasury, it was Danny Alexander who became an absolute passionate advocate of Osborne economics. And I think... It, you know, because Osborne can be this very engaging figure, these Liberal Democrats who had never dreamt of being so close to being at the heart of power were sort of mesmerised and intoxicated by these very slick figures, Cameron and Osborne. And of course, the Lib Dems carried the can absolutely in the 2015 election when they were absolutely annihilated and the Conservatives won a majority. Yeah, well, the Conservatives were brutal... Twice. If you remember, the one thing Nick Clegg did get was a referendum on electoral reform, although at the absolute height of Nick Clegg's power when he was negotiating the coalition, he agreed to a referendum on a form of electoral reform that no one had wanted, including the Lib Dems. But he got the referendum. 
And in that referendum, uh, Cameron and others argued, uh, don't vote for this. You can't trust Nick Clegg. Look what he did with tuition fees. What Nick Clegg did with tuition fees was back Cameron and Osborne. So that was how brutal they were. He was really shaken by it. Um, but then carried on being manipulated once the referendum was over. And then, as you say, in 2015, they were the beneficiaries from not winning an overall majority in 2010. They win one in 2015, and the Lib Dems are slaughtered, as people like Charles Kennedy, David Steele, and others had warned Nick Clegg would happen. Uh, you see, Nick Clegg uh, thought it bought this idea that parts of The Guardian and The Independent and the BBC bought, that uh, Cameron and Osborne were very different types of conservative. Um, and he told Paddy Ashdown that, uh, the former leader who was his sort of mentor. And uh, in his memoir, Clegg says, actually, I got this a bit wrong. They were more ideological than I realised. Well, you're telling me. But it was, in fairness to Cameron Osborne, there, it was all out there. You just had to detach the the emollient tonal uh, demeanour of the duo and just follow the policies and the ideas behind the policies. It was unsurprising. See, in 2010, the Lib Dems pitched to the left of New Labour, including the abolition of tuition fees and increased spending and things. And then they moved into a coalition of the radical right to the right of New Labour. And unsurprisingly, they were punished in 2015. Nick Clegg knew they would be punished, but not to the extent that they were. But that, again, I think showed his naivety. And I don't blame him. He had only been an MP for a few years, quickly became leader, and suddenly finds himself deputy prime minister in a coalition. He was outmaneuvered many times by Cameron and Osborne. We come now with the dismal inevitability of the uh, final reel of, I don't know, some disaster movie or other, to the EU referendum. Cameron calls it because he thinks it's going to end the EU argument in the Tory party. And instead, it supercharged it, transformed the country, wrecked the country, and was still living with the consequences. Did he have any reasonable grounds to think he might win it, apart from the fact that he'd been to a jolly good school and the Scottish referendum had gone his way? Yeah, exactly. Not much more. And and he did go around saying to Merkel and people, don't worry, I'll win this. Um, and he didn't. Now, Danny Finkelstein, who I mentioned earlier, tells me that Cameron thought all along he could lose it. But I don't think that's a defence for Cameron. I think it's an even greater cause for criticism. Why the hell did he call it if he thought he could lose? But I suspect he thought he was going to win. And it was wholly unnecessary. Uh, There were no polls anywhere suggesting that uh, concerns about the EU were the top of the list of voters' concerns. Nowhere. It was way down. We know why he called it. He thought that Tory MPs were going to defect to UKIP, as it was then, and uh, voters, Tory voters, would defect to UKIP in a general election. So he offered the referendum. From the beginning, it didn't work. Farage's Brexit party topped the poll in the European election after Cameron offered the referendum. And then he blew every element of it. When he won again in 2015, he didn't wait until the polls showed a healthy lead for staying in. Uh, He overhyped the scope of his negotiation. He mistakenly thought he would carry his whole cabinet with him. And so it was all unravelling before the campaign even began. It tells us a lot about his character that this all happened. In other words, it wasn't an aberration. It was all done too casually. Uh, He wasn't lazy. 
he was he was a hard worker you have to be in that job um but he was casual and shallow you know i think he t- tries to take comfort with oh, oh blair had iraq i've got this but iraq was different um america was always going to invade iraq so iraq would have happened whether or not blair had backed it this is wholly self-inflicted uh, by one person cameron Michael Gove, who was a Brexiteer, told him not to do it, but he did it. And we are still living with the consequences. Thinking about this stuff and reading around it, it reminded me of how much I hated him at the time, actually. His kind of, that complacency and that just sauntering through life. And it was especially enraging to see him wander off after the, uh, after losing the referendum, going tum-ti-tum. And it was, it was reported that he said, it's, some, it's why should I have to do all the difficult shit? This idea that this is a person just born to, to an easy life. If I'd managed to do to my country what he had done to his, I think I would have retired into a private room in number 10 with a pearl-handled revolver. It was all really a game. That, that quote, uh, I'd like to be prime minister, I think I'd be good at it is one which I don't think he's ever denied. You see, I used to see him a lot when he was leader of the opposition. He, he sort of, he, I was a columnist at The Independent, say the deputy editor Ian Birrell was a huge fan. He wanted me to become a fan. And I used to spend a lot of time with him, I used to go on long train journeys with him. I got the impression in the sort of questions he asked me, obviously I asked him stuff, that it really was a kind of game. He didn't delve deep, you know, when... Previously, obviously, I spent a lot of time with Blair and Brown used to come out with your head spinning with their thoughts in a very different ways. But they both uh, delved deep. It, 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 for him, it was on a, the, the surface of the game. You know, what did he have to do to what's Brown up to? How's he going to, you know, how do I outmaneuver him? As if it was like, you know, an Etonian game. And uh, so losing a referendum and resigning, you know, it's just, oh, well, I've lost that game. And on on I go to make a ton of money. You see, Johnson, in a way, um, he's easier to attack because his misconduct is more blatant. Um, But these two were, had quite a few things in common as well i mean cameron did not preside over chaos and say he was a good manager of his team in number 10 and the cabinet and the lib dems really good i give him sort of a for that side of things but my god everything was so shallow and superficial and also not let's not forget ideological the oliver letwin one of his close uh, friends and allies said our uh, this is turbocharged Thatcherism. We're reviving Thatcherism. But they were calling it things that sounded gentler. To make sense of now, you've got to understand where they all were. The BBC still don't. When Nigel Lawson died the other day, they had David Cameron on. The World at One presenter, Sarah Montague, said to Cameron, but you were way to the left of Nigel Lawson. And even Cameron had to sort of correct it and say, well, actually, we spoke to Nigel a lot to offer a guidance for our economic policy. So, you know, he's still, uh, in the BBC and other places, he's still seen as something that he wasn't. And um, it, it's distorted, I think, quite a lot of the way we see politics. Because if he's on the centre ground, even the very cautious Keir Starmer becomes near Marxist. In compar- you know what I mean? See, you've got to root these people in the right place to make sense of everything that's happened since. Well, I was trying to sort of compare what Britain was like before 
Cameron and Osborne. And, and, and it's almost impossible to make a direct comparison with afterwards because you're in the absolute chaos, the destruction of the political system, the near destruction of the, of the party. Everything is turned upside down. And it's as, almost as great. A, the Cameron government seems to be almost as great a firebreak in history as Brexit itself. You know, everything was destroyed to an extent. It's something for the sort of new Labour generation to reflect on as well, how easy it was for a lot of what they had done over a painstaking 13-year period was swept away. Um, look at things like Shorestart, which was a really big kind of life-enhancing innovation, swept away very quickly. And you then have um, other sort of consequences. I mean, Blair was trying to create a more sort of pro-European country. We end up with Brexit very quickly, six years after that Labour government. 2010 is, is a big break towards a, a different kind of Britain. And, 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 and as a result, the consequences are Britain's place in the world is even more confused. It wasn't resolved under new Labour. Look at Iraq. But now, out of Europe, but what kind of relationship with America and where is Britain? You, you, you know, and, and these questions intensified and deepened after 2010. In a way, I think one of the sort of underestimated achievements of the Labour era was the revival of public services, the revival of cities, actually. It shows how quickly all that can be undone. Steve, you've successfully reminded me why I loathed him so much. <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, thanks for this. It's always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. Listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to help us do more of this kind of thing, then please do consider supporting us on Patreon. You'll get every episode early without adverts uh, and uh, nice extras too. We hope you've enjoyed this one. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomty Tom. The Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the Producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Art Direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.